Dear friends, gentle listeners, and newcomers, thank you for participating with us today. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to stimulate thought, expand consciousness, enhance mental and physical health, and encourage community. Community is the key. Within community, we can each have stimulating thoughts, expanded consciousness, and enhanced mental and physical health. Without community, We are isolated, alienated souls, bouncing like atoms from place to place with nowhere to land, no safe place for comfort and sustenance. Community is our key. Today, we're going to have an interview with Dr. Abraham Morgenthaler, who is a leading international figure in the fields of male sexuality, testosterone therapy, prostate cancer, and more. Dr. Morgenthaler has written four books, and we're going to be talking about them today. So stay tuned for this educational and very exciting interview. First, news and notes in psychology and medicine. Well, actually, folks, today we're going to bypass most of news and notes in psychology and medicine because I want to give Dr. Morgenthaler as much time as possible because I want you to hear what he has to say. But I am going to make one news and note commentary. For over 12 years, actually, it's a lot longer than 12 years, I've been bringing to your attention the overweight obesity epidemic in this country. And I've been pointing out to you again and again that we are now at approximately 67% of the population who are overweight or obese. Now, ordinarily, you would think that people go from normal weight to overweight to obese and then morbidly obese, which is beyond obese, that there would be a progression, that as you gain more weight, you move up in these categories. For the first time in recorded history, some few years ago, I brought to your attention that for the first time, as I said, in recorded history, the obese are a higher percentage of the population than the overweight. Yes, strange as that may sound to you, it's almost as if like you jumped from grammar school to high school. You jumped from normality right into obesity, sort of speeding past overweight. And as I've been telling you again for so many years, Sometimes I think I'm talking into the wind. Not that you're not listening, but where is the government on this? Why do we not have a national program to face a national epidemic? If 67% of our country had a common cold, it would be making news. If 67% of our country stubbed their toe, it would be making news on a daily basis. Why is this topic not being addressed? Why is it not making news? Well, the reason I'm mentioning it right now is because it did make news this week. In the most recent edition of a magazine, 
an important magazine in the East, at least, the East Coast of the United States, called Fashion New York. On the front cover is a woman named Ashley Graham, and she is somewhere between overweight and obese, and she is a top model. And then, if you turn to the middle of the magazine on page 38, there's an article with three beautiful models, and all three of them are either overweight or obese. The title is Fashion for the 67%, a revolution in the plus-size market. And what they're attempting to do, and what this model is attempting to do, is normalize overweight and obesity. And I want to say that I believe this is a huge mistake. We do not want to normalize an illness. That would make us all feel that having this illness is normal. What we need is just the opposite. Without shaming or blaming these folks who are suffering from this illness, again, I'll say that again, without in the slightest shaming or blaming the folks who have this illness, and I do understand they're wanting to be normalized, the fact is that an illness is not normal. Or am I wrong? Are we now in a situation where an illness has become normal? I leave you with that thought and we'll talk about it again in the future. But now, to our interview with Dr. Abraham Morgenthaler. He's a leading international figure in the fields of testosterone therapy, prostate cancer, and male sexuality. In 1999, Dr. Morgenthaler founded Men's Health Boston, the first men's health center in the United States focusing on sexual, reproductive, and hormonal health for men. Furthermore, Dr. Morgenthaler is credited with shattering, shattering the decades-old belief established by Nobel Prize winner Charles Huggins that testosterone therapy is risky for prostate cancer. What this meant was, based on Huggins' work, for decades, men suffering from low testosterone did not take treatment because they were afraid of either initiating or exacerbating prostate cancer. Dr. Morgenthaler proved them wrong, and the whole field of urology has turned in a new direction. He has pioneered the modern use of testosterone in men. More recently, he has been a leading scientific figure in the global discussion regarding cardiovascular risks of testosterone therapy. We're going to hear about that as well. He's published over 130 scientific articles, including in the leading medical journals that you've heard me talk about on this program over the years, the New England Journal of Medicine, Lancet, Journal of the American Medical Association, and Cancer. So, now for our interview, welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Dr. Bogenthaler. Well, thank you very much. That was a lovely introduction. Good. I wanted it to be. I'm so appreciative of your being here with us today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. So we have a limited amount of time, so I'm going to jump right into the interview. In one of your books, you say that erectile dysfunction affects about 50% of men between the ages of 45 and 70 to some degree, and premature ejaculation affects 20% of men regardless of age, and one-third of men over 45 years have low testosterone levels. 
given that procreation is necessary for the survival of our species, what's going on with our plumbing? <laughs> That's funny. That's very good. Well, listen, you know, in terms of evolution, we always have to be a little bit careful because most of that really refers to, like, all the, all the powers that, that influence natural selection and all that. It's really about reproductive success. And some of the stuff that happens, I think, when we're 50 may not have to do as much with reproduction. You know, humans are so clever that alone amongst the, the animals, we've actually made sex into a phenomenon separate from reproduction. So for us, sexuality has a lot of meaning, but only about 1% of human uh, couplings, if you will, um, result in um, uh, offspring, uh, a figure that's very, very different from uh, animals that don't have any understanding of menstrual cycles and fertile periods and don't have birth control uh, the way we do. Are you saying, but, are you saying that animals other than humans have a, 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 a much higher percentage of procreation actually or conception have it happening as a result of intercourse instead of at the 1% level, you're saying that other animals have a much higher percentage? So th- oh, absolutely. I absolutely. see. Okay. Yeah, but listen, but it's, that's not, it shouldn't be so surprising if you think about it because most, mo- most people are having sex, they're not trying to make babies. So, you know, it's just a fraction of, of the times that we actually have sex in our lifetime. And certainly for women who are having uh, intercourse sex after, after uh, menopause, um, they can't get pregnant. And there are a lot of men who aren't interested in a pregnancy when they're having sex. They're ha- having sex because they want to have sex. So, um, but we cert- I think the point of your question, which I think is an important one, is that men have a lot of challenges. Uh, in terms of sexual function. And what interests me really in part is also the psychology of men. And my last book, which was uh, came out as Why Men Fake It, and then in paperback uh, came out as The Truth About Men and Sex, um, I go into what I think of as the psychology of men. And what I've learned about uh, men in that way uh, after treating you know many thousands of men after almost thirty years uh, in my practice, and um, you know men are are fascinating uh, creatures. I think we've had a bad rap overall in the public media and in stereotypes about men. Um, but one of the issues for men is that they want to be very manly and they want to be great sexual providers for their partners. Um, which often is under-recognized. But one of their issues is that because there's so many men who do have physical problems like erectile dysfunction and about half of men over the age of 40, 45, uh, premature ejaculation, testosterone deficiency, as you mentioned, um, there are a lot of challenges just with real life and as well now with medical issues too. You know, given my, my specialty in psychology, when I read that you're saying that 50% of the men between the ages of 40 and 70 have to some degree erectile dysfunction. You're saying to me that 50% of all the men between 40 and 70 are suffering psychologically because they're not providing or they're afraid of not providing and their masculinity is on the line. Is that correct? 
Yeah, that's very, very true. Those data, by the way, came from um, the Massachusetts Male Aging Study um, about uh, 20 years ago. And um, and these were men who were self-reporting this. So, you know, they weren't up to any... They weren't hooked up to any monitors or testing, but these men complained of mild, moderate, or severe um, erectile dysfunction. And then, and we know that men don't like to admit to this stuff. The numbers may, in fact, even be a little bit higher. Um, now, whether or not Massachusetts men are representative of the country, you know, I'm from Boston, so I, I don't want to get into that, but um, I think it probably is. Well, I understand and I appreciate you pointing out a possible sampling error, but that, <laughs> but, but that, uh, that Massachusetts study was on a large number of people. And, yes. you know, as you recall, the name of this program is Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. And you give me these numbers, and I'm immediately thinking the men in our Congress and the House and the Senate are all over 40 years old, and, you're, and we're saying that 50% of them are, function, are, are suffering from some form of erectile dysfunction, which says to me they're walking around at some level not very happy about their masculinity or about how they're providing for their partners. And I'm wondering how that's affecting their governance of the whole United States. That's a serious <laughs> issue. Well, you know what's interesting related to that is that... Um, you know, the term for what we now call erectile dysfunction used to be impotence. And in 19, I believe 1994, the uh, National Institutes of Health had a consensus conference, and it was determined that we should avoid the term impotence, and that's where the term erectile dysfunction came in as a replacement. And the argument behind it was that the word impotence uh, not only meant a man who had trouble achieving an erection or maintaining an erection, but just in general language meant powerless or ineffective. Yes. And, you know, the argument was why should men who are having a largely biological or medical problem be burdened with this additional concept, that uh, this term, that suggests that they are powerless or ineffective. And so they said, we have a whole lot of medical conditions where we use the term dysfunction. You know, like if your kidneys don't work, we say renal dysfunction. If your liver doesn't work well, we say liver hepatic or liver dysfunction. So let's do the same with erectile dysfunction. Now, curiously, in England, they still use the word impotent. And it's an interesting thing, you know, there's no right answer to any of these things, but it's always occurred to me that men who do have erectile dysfunction feel impotent. And it's not necessarily the wrong word. In some ways, it actually captures that feeling um, as well as any word that we have. Well, you see where I was headed with the political commentary, because I'm sitting and wondering how three congressmen uh, who are sitting there feeling impotent are doing when they're negotiating with another country, and just by chance the other country have three men sitting there who are not sitting having erectile dysfunction and how that affects. But let's move on. You, you have brought to our attention, and, and, and thanks, thank you so much, sir, for doing so, the effect of testosterone on erectile dysfunction. So let's move in that direction. First of all, what is testosterone? Tell our listeners. So testosterone is a chemical substance that's made by every man and actually by women as well, although in smaller amounts. It's made primarily by the testicles, and it's responsible for little boys being born looking like little boys rather than girls 
it virilizes our anatomy, uh, meaning that you know the genitalia come out looking male instead of female. It's responsible for puberty in boys. Um, you know, the voice changes, the muscular definition, um, the deepening of the voice. And then in adulthood, it's uh, a critical factor for actually quite a number of normal uh, physiologic uh, processes. And it affects muscle and fat and certainly our sexuality and our brain in terms of sex drive and also cognition, um, our thinking ability. It affects our bone density. And when testosterone levels decline in many men, adult men, which we don't always understand why that happens, but it's pretty common, uh, then men can get a variety of symptoms uh, that are very disturbing to them. Does testosterone across the board, let's say a general, a vast majority of men, decrease with age? Uh, yes. So um, that answer isn't quite as simple as it sounds, but I think that the fair sort of overall answer is yes, testosterone declines with age and our ability of the testicles to produce testosterone goes down with age. The reason it's a little bit less clear is that if you look at studies where they look at men over uh, different age groups, the decline in testosterone, the total testosterone, is actually pretty minor. So in most but not all studies, the testosterone declines somewhat. Um, in some studies, it doesn't decline at all. Now, the catch in there is that doctors and um, and researchers in the field, we all trained on what's called total testosterone. But in fact, most of the testosterone that circulates in our bloodstream, and it's through the bloodstream that it gets to all the different areas, the brain, the sex organs, etc. most of it, or about half of it anyway, depending on the study, is attached to a carrier molecule called sex hormone binding globulin, we call it SHBG. And the characteristics of it binding to SHBG is that it's actually not available to the cells that need it. It's sort of like a long-term reservoir for the testosterone. In fact, the portion of testosterone that is more uh, relevant is called free testosterone, and the free indicates that it's not attached or not bound to the other molecules. So with aging, the total testosterone doesn't change that much because SHBG, that carrier molecule, increases and it holds on to more of the testosterone. But free testosterone, which again is the active portion, declines quite dramatically with age. And the actual ability then of the body to be having active testosterone goes down considerably uh, the older we get. So given all the functions that testosterone serves that you listed for us a moment ago, at what age are you recommending to your patients and now to our listeners that they start getting tested for free testosterone? Great question. So, again, most doctors are just comfortable with total testosterone, but I think as we... And so if you go to your doctor and say, I want to have my testosterone checked, they're going to get a total testosterone. Some who are very interested in this um, or more experienced may also get a free. But uh, in terms of the and, – and testosterone is okay as a test. It's just um, sometimes it gets confusing about what's happening with well, the it's, different it's, fractions. Well, sorry to, to – I don't mean to, to, to disagree, yeah. but it, 
it's really not okay as a test because you're pointing out to us that testosterone itself over lifetime doesn't decrease much, but the relevant variable here is the free testosterone, which does decrease over time. So therefore, a part of why you're on this program is to educate our listeners so they understand when they go to their urologist, as competent as they may be, that they should ask for a free testosterone test and make sure they get it because that's the culprit if there is one. I like what you're doing with that. So you're you're exactly right. You're exactly right. There, I can't tell you how much resistance there is, though, in medicine for against doing anything that's new and different. So, so I, I think you caught me, and I confess I'm guilty of um, of giving in, in in that last answer to what people, what most of the doctors will accept and what may be functional or useful for them. Now, let's not, let's, as of this program, let's not allow them to do that anymore, <laughs> sir. And that's why we're teaming up, because I know how right you are, because I personally have gone to several good physicians and asked for free testosterone tests, and they've insisted on just getting the testosterone, and they tell me the other one isn't necessary, and yet I've read your work, and I know that it is necessary. So you're right. Well, here's, yeah. here's why it's important. So every, uh, certainly every week, I, I don't know that every day, but every week we see patients here at my, at my clinic um, who uh, have all the symptoms of low testosterone. They've gone to see their primary care or perhaps a urologist or somebody, um, and they said, gee, I, I've been reading about testosterone. Maybe I have low testosterone. Can you check me? And they get the bloods back, blood test results, and they said, no, your testosterone is normal. And we see these people as second opinions, and their total testosterone may indeed be normal, but their free testosterone is low, and they yes. have classic symptoms, and we treat those men. And, and those men respond just as nicely as men who have low levels of total testosterone. So you're exactly right. The free testosterone is really, there needs to be a lot of education around this, um, even for people who believe that they're sophisticated with it. Now, please remind our listeners again the relationship between low free testosterone and male functioning, including erectile functioning, bone density, muscle mass, cognitive functioning. Well, the symptoms and the effect of having low levels of testosterone, and as you point out, low free, free testosterone, are quite a few. It's a long list, and not everybody has all of them. And I like to break them into sexual symptoms and non-sexual symptoms. On the sex side, the symptoms are often that the erections are weaker, that sex drive is reduced. Excuse me, cases. doctor. Excuse me. Yep. Just let me interrupt for one second. If you'd kindly just move a tiny bit away from your uh, the apparatus that you're speaking into. Can you hear me now? Much better. Thank you. Kindly. Okay. So the symptoms of, uh, of low testosterone can be sexual or non-sexual. And in the sexual side, the symptoms tend to be weaker erections, uh, reduced or absent uh, libido or sex drive. Um, it may be more difficult to achieve an orgasm. The intensity of the orgasm may be reduced. And uh, some men may notice that the sort of that um, special sensation in the genital region, um, like that tingling, that sexual feeling, is gone or absent. On the non-sexual side, the most common symptom we hear is fatigue, that men are tired beyond the point where it makes sense to them. You know, Everybody says, oh, everybody's tired these days. Well, that may be true, but everybody knows what life was like for them, and these guys have more fatigue than they can understand. Their pep or their energy is reduced. Uh, some people feel
feel like they're walking around in what we call brain fog, where they just don't feel like they're thinking clearly or sharp. They're missing kind of their, their little extra edge. Uh, men come in because their workouts aren't... Um, men know that their uh, muscles respond in a certain way as you keep working out, and uh, and they come in, they say things just aren't progressing the way they should. Guys put on weight around the middle uh, section, regardless of how they're eating or dieting or exercising. And it affects bone density, so that just as women are at risk for osteoporosis once their hormones change with menopause, uh, men are also at risk for osteoporosis, especially if their testosterone is reduced. So, man hears this. He goes in. He gets tested. Hopefully, his doctor will give him a test for free testosterone. If not, and you're listening, find another urologist or a GP who will get you a test for free testosterone. He then finds out that he is low. What should he do? Well, then, uh, you know, for a lot of these people, going on testosterone um, is going to help them a lot. And um, if they have symptoms like we've just talked about, and they have low levels of testosterone that's documented, most of those people really deserve a trial of, of treatment. Your books are full of case histories of men whose lives have been improved markedly as a result of testosterone therapy, correct? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, the, it's, it, the strange thing is that there are these people who are almost like testosterone deniers out there um, who say, oh, it's no good, it's just normal aging. You know, this is nonsense. And I guarantee you that anybody that says that just doesn't, hasn't treated men because it doesn't take very long to see the, the benefits. And I tell most of those people, just come to my practice, to my office, just for a morning, and you'll leave being convinced. I mean, we're not trying to sell anything here. I mean, this is, you know, when I started this, it was uh, around 1988 I came out in practice, and I had started in the testosterone field as an undergraduate at Harvard College working in a laboratory for three years with lizards. And we, we castrated these lizards. We removed their testicles. We put them in a cage with the females. And the lizards have this very um, characteristic and uh, interesting sexual behavior where when they see the female, there's this bright colored flap of skin under the neck called a dewlap that comes out. And their head bobs up and down very quickly. It's like the male's going, yeah, 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 yeah. And if you remove their testicles, their testosterone goes to zero. And you put them in a cage after they've recovered, and they do nothing with the female. They just don't care. And my experiment was to put testosterone back in the portions of their brains that are involved in sexual behavior. And if I was successful in doing it, when sometimes I was and sometimes I wasn't, it was a small brain and delicate procedure. But if I was successful in getting in the right place, these animals with no circulating testosterone in their bloodstream, just testosterone in their brain, would again have their dewlap come out when they saw the female and their head would bob up and down like crazy, just like before. And so what I learned at a very young age was that testosterone was a necessary component for the entire range of sexual behavior, at least in the male lizard, and, um, and that it was a brain hormone. And when I came out of my urology training here at Harvard, and I went into practice in 1988, and I started seeing men with sexual problems, you know, we didn't have that much to offer them. Uh, Viagra, Cialis weren't around yet. Um, 
a lot of there was still a belief that a lot of this was psychological, left over from Masters and Johnson, as I'm sure you remember. Yes. And and I was curious whether humans might uh, be a little bit like those lizards that I had studied um, previously. And so I, even though my training, we never gave testosterone to men. All we did is lower testosterone for these men who had uh, advanced prostate cancer. Yeah, I started checking testosterone levels, and I was surprised at how often these men had low levels. And just to see what would happen, I just gave injections of testosterone to a number of these men without any guarantees or anything that anything was going to happen. And it was remarkable to me how these men responded. You know, we talk in in, in medicine often in, in terms of uh, these large studies, average response to treatment, um, and what we miss and when we talk about that was we miss the individual flavor of what it means to people. And so these men would tell me stories like, you know, my erections are better, doctor, but not only that, uh, I have more patience for my small children. Or they'd say, I wake up in the morning with a sense of optimism about my day. I haven't had that in, in 20 years. My wife says I'm nicer to be with. Um, I heard all these things, and I wasn't sure whether maybe this was a placebo effect or not. But what was interesting to me is that the training back then was to give testosterone. It was used rarely, but it was used in some very severe cases where men had, like, pituitary surgery or they'd lost both their testicles to accidents or cancer. And the training was that you gave an injection every four weeks. And these men came back, and they said, so that's how I feel, Doc. I feel great for the first two weeks, maybe a little bit longer. But for a week or two before the next injection, all my symptoms come back. What's up with that? Right. And I didn't know until I started checking testosterone levels. And it turned out that the formulations of testosterone that we had then, which were the only ones available, lasted a maximum of 14 days. Brilliant. So these men could tell when their levels were high, because they were high, and by 14 days, their symptoms came back, and neither they nor I, frankly, knew that that was supposed to happen, but that's what happened. And the men could tell when their levels dropped. This was a real thing. It wasn't a placebo effect. And that's really what started me off on this, what's turned out to be you know, the focus of my professional career, which is testosterone therapy for men. I want to... Uh tell our listeners that when you injected the testosterone uh, into these men and achieved these remarkable results, which you then went on to write about and publish about, and, and you've been doing this for 30 years, when you did that, it was a, if I may use the word, amazingly courageous act because your field was totally convinced that Nobel Prize winner Charles Huggins, who won the Nobel Prize by establishing a relationship between testosterone and prostate cancer, you were going against the entire medical, the, the entire medical community. And Huggins, the Nobel Prize winner, I say again, had said, and I quote, testosterone on prostate cancer is like throwing gasoline on a fire. And you came out with a rejoinder, and I'd like you to please quote yourself on the rejoinder rather than me quoting you, though I know what you said, and tell us why you said what you said as the rejoinder. Well, I'm not sure which rejoinder. The one about thirst and and the water. Ah, yes. So, yeah, so 
Charles Huggins deserved the Nobel Prize, but not for, you know, when somebody does something remarkable, um, we tend often to put them up on a pedestal. We believe that everything that they said or wrote or did must be correct because they were such a genius. And in fact, Huggins did showed for the first time in medicine that any prostate can that any cancer uh, might be hormonally sensitive. So that's and he did a body of work not just with prostate cancer, but also he went on from that work uh, on to dealing with breast and ovarian cancer. Um, and so he did a, a huge body of work that was largely um, correct, but he made at least one important error in there and, and, and thank you for recognizing what the what the what what the zeitgeist was at the time when I started doing testosterone. So you're absolutely right that, that urologists in particular never, ever, ever used testosterone because we were afraid it was going to make any hidden cancer grow like crazy. And it, right around that time we were also finding out that many men in their fifties and above had small amounts of microscopic amounts of prostate cancer in their prostates, and they found this out through autopsy studies for men who died, you know, in the military or in motor vehicle accidents and things like that. And so the idea was that if we raised testosterone, it was going to make these cancers grow like crazy. Um, what occurred to me over quite a number of years of research, though, was that. Uh, when we lower testosterone essentially to zero in men with advanced prostate cancer, we do see an important effect where the PSA blood test goes down, um, prostate uh, and prostate cancers uh, shrink, um, and if somebody has no testosterone and the testosterone is allowed to rise again, well, then there's PSA goes back up again. So there's clearly some effect of testosterone on uh, prostate and PSA and, 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 and prostate cancer. But as I researched this, what it turned out is that it appeared that it's only at very low concentrations of testosterone that there is this kind of dose effect where a little bit more may cause a little bit more growth, a little bit more may cause even a little bit more growth. And it plateaus or it, it maxes out at a very low concentration of testosterone. And the argument for why that, you know, for supporting that is that um, there's no difference in outcomes or growth or, or PSA changes for men throughout almost the entire range of testosterone until we get to extremely low levels. So we call that the saturation model. I wrote that up about close to 10 years ago now. And, um, and in the end, then, what occurred to me is that there's a point at which testosterone, as we add testosterone to a man who is deficient, uh, most of those men have already maxed out on any effect on the prostate, and other men may only have a little bit more room for the testosterone to cause any growth, and then they become maxed out. And that's the saturation idea. And over the years since then, and so the, the rejoinder, if you will, is that we used to say that testosterone was like food for a hungry tumor. And instead, what I say now is that testosterone is like water for a thirsty tumor. And the difference is, is that if you eat and you eat and you eat, you get fatter and fatter and fatter. And if you drink and you drink and you drink, all that really happens is you make a lot of trips to the bathroom to eliminate the excess fluid. Okay. What do we know then if we know 
that extremely low testosterone does have an effect on prostate cancer, or at least on the PSAs. What do we know about the flip side in terms of extremely very high? Suppose someone takes a testosterone therapy and they overdo it. Do we know anything about them, about the ones at the extreme? Like one friend of mine was taking a testosterone therapy, and he got up, by the way, for you listening, normal on the range, often when you see it on the papers, the range goes from 400 to 900. He, he was at uh, 3,500. Wow. What can you so say that, about that? Yeah, so we actually, there are some studies where they've looked at super high doses of testosterone that gets into the range just like your friend. It's not what I'd recommend, by the way. That's sort of bodybuilding levels, if you will. Um, but the PSA doesn't change. So if you, this in normal studies with men taking uh, super high doses uh, for periods as long as nine months, the PSA did not go up which suggests that the prostate isn't growing, and in those studies there was no reports of prostate cancer occurring in men who were exposed to very high levels. What are the liabilities of people listening? Because you know how we are as people. Uh, people there's plenty of us who say, well, if one works, I'll take three. So some of the people are going to hear this program and say, oh, this testosterone, terrific for my uh, erections. Uh, I'll take uh, twice as much and have uh, twice as big an erection or something like that. What do we say to them about what the dangers are of taking too much? Well, you know, I, I, I'm really, in the end, a mainstream medical doctor in the sense that, you know, I'm, I'm classically trained and I believe in science and, and I've been doing research my whole uh, career. Um, and it's my own philosophy as a physician that what I want it, what I personally want to be treating is men who have medical conditions, which is, which includes testosterone for men who have low levels. And my goal is to help them with their symptoms and feel better. But there's another area of testosterone treatment that creates a lot of um, negative feelings. And it has to do with the world of bodybuilding and performance enhancement, where individuals without a medical reason for being on uh, an anabolic steroid. Hello? Oh, we lost him. Hello? We lost him completely, Michael. Oh, my gosh. Did we lose the station, or can the listeners hear me talking? Well, listeners, uh, we lost Dr. Morgenthaler, and uh, Michael's going to uh, call him back on the phone. But right now, I'm just going to review some of what we're talking about. So, again, he's telling us that 50% of men between 40 and 70 have erectile dysfunction. That's a very high number. And uh, he's also telling us that 20% of men, regardless of age, and one-third of men over 45, have low testosterone levels, uh, which are contributing to their erectile problems. This is a pioneer, Dr. Morgenthaler, is a pioneer in the use of testosterone to treat erectile dysfunction as well as the other symptoms that come from low testosterone, and he mentioned them. Cognitive decline, loss of muscle mass, as well as sort of what you call basic attitude of confidence in the world. So it's, it's a very, very important topic, and uh, it looks like Michael has uh, Dr. Morgenthaler back on the phone, so I want you to stay tuned uh, because we're talking about the effects of the testosterone uh, treatment 
uh, upon our, our, our general functioning. And here, uh, Dr. Morgenthaler, are you back? Hi there. I don't know what happened. Wonderful. We don't that. either, but I've been sort of yeah. reviewing what you've been saying for our listeners, and, and I'm very glad that you're back. So let's, what I'm saying let's, is I don't, I, don't treat for le- I don't treat to get people to very high levels. We try and get them into the upper range of normal, by and large, yes. where most of the symptoms uh, get better. But your question is about risks is an important one, and there's everything we do, including going out for a walk on a sunny day, entails some degree of risk, right? And so there are some known uh, adverse effects that happen with testosterone. I like to tell my patients that all of them are reversible, which means they go away if we stop. And what they include are is that uh, younger men, let's say under the age of 40, 45, may see some pimples that they haven't seen before Mm -hmm. uh, in many years. Um, We can get some swelling of the uh, ankles with some fluid retention. Um, Super rarely, we see some enlargement of the breast or some nipple sensitivity that, again, goes away if we stop the treatment or we can also add some other medication for that. And then the one that we medically pay the most attention to is we can get a rise in the red blood. Lost him again. Well, we're having some very, uh, Michael, please call him back. Let's see what we can do. Do we have any idea what's going on here at the, um, technically? Well, stay tuned, folks, and, uh, and I'll keep uh, talking about what uh, Dr. Morgenthaler is talking about because we've got some very important things coming up. We want to talk to him about Viagra. We want to talk to him about Cialis, the uh, erectile uh, functioning uh, medications. Uh, we want to know um, about overdosing with Viagra and Cialis because that's one of the questions that I get asked about in my practice on, on a regular basis. In other words, if, you, if 100 milligrams of, uh, of Viagra works, uh, what happens if I take 200 milligrams? Do, do I get uh, twice as much effect on my penis? Um, we also want to have questions about uh, the effects of, these, uh, of testosterone therapy on female partners, because people have raised this question. Suppose the uh, creams that men are putting on their bodies uh, get rubbed off onto the females, and we're going to ask Dr. Morgan Toller about that. And you also may have questions uh, which you can call in with. The telephone number here is 707-937-5103. I repeat, 707-937-5103. And it looks like um, um, Michael has Dr. Morgenthaler back on the telephone. Did you get him back on, Michael? He's working on it right now. I see he's punching numbers into the phone, and uh, it looks like we're about to have him back on. You're going to push one last button, and he did. And uh, Dr. Morgenthaler, are you back? (laughs) I am. Well, we're having some transcontinental difficulty here, but we're going to pick up just where we left off, please. Good. So I think I was finishing up with risks. Yes, risks. I don't know where I got cut off. Um, But the ones that we talk about are acne, Yes. Um, some fluid in the uh, from fluid retention, um, a rise in the red blood cell count, and uh, some swelling of the breast tissue. So another question that I've been asked uh, with regard to uh, the testosterone is, um, which of the various forms of administration 
uh, are you presently recommending? Because we know there are the, uh, the injections, and you talked about uh, what happens, how they uh, decrease over time. Uh, you see on television they're selling pills like crazy, and there are also creams and gels. And one of the questions that I've been asked is, when a man uses the cream or a gel, can it rub off onto a female partner? And if so, what will be the effects? Yeah, so it can. Uh, we call that transference, and it has to happen. It doesn't happen very often. Um, as a matter of fact, it's really quite rare. Um, but in theory, because women walk around with much lower levels of testosterone than men do, if their levels go higher, they can get uh, hair growth, body hair growth, and um, uh, they may get pimples too, actually. Um, and the main issue that we really think about is around the, the hair. In theory, if it happened long enough, um, everybody always talks about the idea of deepening voice, but I'm not sure that that can really happen, um, at least not, not from the amounts that would get transferred. So there are all these different ways to give testosterone, as you point out, and all of them are fine as long as they really do raise testosterone into a good level. I should point out that the over-the-counter supplements that claim that they increase your testosterone or free testosterone are all, in my opinion, nonsense and uh, they don't do what they're supposed to do. Testosterone is a controlled substance, and the FDA is all over it in terms of regulation. And not only don't those supplements do anything, but the FDA wouldn't allow them to be marketed if they actually did. So be, ca so be cautious there. In our own practice, we use a lot of pellets, which are um, basically compressed testosterone into the... Uh, something the size of a grain of rice. We put a number of those into the fatty tissue of the buttock. Uh, we numb it up. We make a tiny little nick in the skin, and they, these things last for about three months. There's also a long-acting injection that goes by the name of testosterone undecanoate, or its trade name is Avid, uh, that's FDA-approved, and um, last gets, you get an injection every 10 weeks or so. Uh, it's expensive if you don't have insurance coverage. Uh, the most common and probably least expensive treatment are the short-acting injections. They last about two weeks, and we were talking about those a few minutes ago. Um, those are available pretty much everywhere, testosterone cypionate and testosterone enanthate. So the good side is it's cheap. The downside is it requires a fair number of injections. Most of our men who we teach to inject themselves, uh, we do it on an every-week uh, basis. If they come in the office, we'll give them a slightly higher dose and do it every two weeks. And then until recently, the leader uh, were really the topical products, the, the creams and the gels that you rub in your skin. Those are fine. They're non-invasive. Nobody needs an injection with them. Um, they come both as branded products that may be covered by insurance. And for people who don't have it, uh, some doctors like to use compounded uh, creams. Um, and again, the issue is, does it raise your testosterone adequately and, and take care of your symptoms? And if it does that, the results are going to be equivalent for all of them. So all of them can maintain a level on a day-to-day -day basis. We no longer have this uh, decrease over time like you found uh, years ago with uh, at the end of 14 days it wore off. The modern injections in these seeds are sustained uh, release. Well, they all work for a while. And then depending on what the product is, it, it goes down. So the gels, when you apply them, they're good for about 24 hours, which means the guy has to put it on daily. Mm -hmm. uh, the short-acting injections, as I say, last a week to two weeks. 
The long-acting injection, now FDA-approved, lasts about 10 weeks, and the pellets last for about three months. Ah. There is one one new and very clever um, product, which is a nasal gel called Natesto, um, where it uh, you it's a gel, not a spray, but you put it in your nostril. You give a couple of squeezes, one on one side, one on the other, and you rub it into your nose on the inside. And you have to do that a couple of times a day. Um, but actually, that's quite effective, too, and takes care of... If you don't want to do injections or pellets, you don't have to deal with rubbing cream on your body or in your hands, and there's no transference issue to the women. I'll restrain myself from making jokes about spraying it into the <laughs> nose, and we'll move on to the next... Uh, some uh, of my female patients have, uh, are of the opinion that they're getting testosterone from their male partners and it's resulting in what they believe is a, a, a hypertrophy uh, enlargement of the clitoris. Uh, can you comment on that? Well, in theory, it's possible, certainly. Um, uh Certainly, um, female-to-male transgender folks who use testosterone do get hypertrophy of the clitoris as part of their response to the testosterone, so that's possible. Uh, The issue with transference is, though, that that when they've done studies to look at this, you need a lot of contact uh, for this to happen. So in the studies, when they've looked at this, they've actually, and I think this was done for the FDA, They took men and women, the men applied the gel, and they essentially tied these two individuals (laughs) to each other and had them do like some activities, like walk walk around or something, that the the stuff is rubbing from one skin to the other. And and even in those cases, in in most instances, there really wasn't that much of an absorption (laughs) by the women. So... You know, I don't want to, it's a black box warning on the label in terms of the transference issue, and I, I don't want to minimize it, but I can tell you that I think some of these, um, I don't think all the cases are real, and uh, it takes a lot of work, but if it happens, certainly, then we have to, then then the gels is not a good way for the guy to be getting his testosterone. Well, is there, I don't know if there's a downside to the hypertrophy, but let's move on. We, maybe we're going to, we may have to have another interview if I, I don't mean to be imposing or, or uh, assuming anything that you'd be willing, but I, I have other topics to talk about. We're running out of time. Please tell us something about the relationship between testosterone and heart disease, because that's another area where testosterone has been getting a bad rap. Yeah. So, you know, for 20 years, uh, it was, there was evidence, more and more accumulating evidence, that testosterone was good for the heart. So it, uh, in these meta-analyses, which are where you put together all these different studies and, and you look at the combined data, and is now considered the highest level of evidence because it's not just on one study. Men with low testosterone, naturally occurring lower levels of testosterone, die sooner than men with normal levels of testosterone. So mortality is increased with lower testosterone. Atherosclerosis shown to be increased in men with low testosterone, having a normal testosterone appeared protective. Out of the blue, in 2013 came a paper that was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association that reported that men who had taken testosterone uh, had more heart attacks, deaths, and strokes uh, than men who uh, did not take it. And then shortly after that, there was another paper that seemed to suggest the same thing. 
those two studies are very, in terms of scientific um, uh, quality, ended up being very poor. The first one that was published in JAMA turns out that they misreported their data, and actually it was the men who received testosterone who had less heart attacks, strokes, and deaths than the men who didn't. And um, since then, there have been, I believe, 14 uh, studies published, not one of which supports the idea that testosterone is bad for heart disease. On the contrary, there's some really clever studies where they've looked at the longer a man's been on testosterone, the lower his risk of heart attack, stroke, and death. And in one study, they looked at men who got testosterone but didn't normalize their levels, which can happen to about 15% of men who are on gels, for example. And the men who normalized had much lower rates of, of disease uh, than men who didn't normalize, even though everybody was taking testosterone. So my take on all this now is I th and we know that testosterone reduces fat, increases muscle, I think that the mechanism of it helping, I think, is just clear through the obesity issue, which you brought up at the very beginning of the hour. And um, and I think, if anything, the data are going to show that testosterone is good for the heart. I'm not going to ask you the question of whether you're personally taking testosterone, but I am going to ask you, if you were to take a blood test and your free testosterone was low, would you have any, uh, any hesitation about taking testosterone therapy? Well, that's a marvelous question, and what comes up is, is certainly if a man has symptoms and he has low testosterone, I, I encourage those men to consider a trial of testosterone. You know, as a, as a doctor, I don't want to tell people that they have to do something, but I think that there's a lot of benefits to that. The other question is for the guy who thinks that he's just fine and, and isn't bothered by sexual problems, his libido is good, his workouts are fine, and some of those guys will have a low level of testosterone. And they come in, they say, Doc, do you think I should be taking this? And, and there's no clear answer. Here's what I can say is that in the year 2017, we don't have the kind of evidence we like to show that there are benefits, long-term health benefits of doing it. And so it's hard to recommend it on a scientific basis. But in general, I think what the data are showing or suggesting is that men are healthier if they have a normal level of testosterone than if they do not. Thank you. That's a, that's a great answer. Uh, we've got two minutes left, and I want to uh, ask you to please make a comment for, based on your, your, your long history uh, of treating sexual dysfunction. Uh, please talk about the relationship between our sex lives and pornography because pornography, as you know, is the biggest selling item on the Internet worldwide. So in my field, pornography has... Um, it's rare to find uh, these days a male between the ages of 14 and 94 uh, who hasn't looked at pornography or who doesn't do it on at least an intermittent basis. Like, it's everywhere. It's just, you know, one click away on the computer now. And uh, it's changed uh, society, I think, tremendously. Um, for the most part, what surprises me in my field, really, of sexual medicine is that we don't see a lot of trouble with it. Now, we do see some. And what we see is we do see some men who are so um, addicted to porn that it's difficult for them to function sexually um, with a live human partner where there isn't some script, you know, some crazy script where... Um, you know, that gets played out in, in the world of porn. 
So that is true, and those guys need to get off point so they can sort of reset, if you will. Um, I think the bigger issue, though, is for the younger generation, where what they're learning about sex and how it plays into relationships is based uh, too much on what they're seeing via the Internet on porn, and it's, it's got no relationship to reality. So the conversations aren't right. The consequences uh, of a conversation, you know, like women don't just drop their clothes because you say hello to them, um, or if you, if you look muscular. I think it's affected men in terms of thinking about whether they're adequate or not. We see some of that because a lot of the actors who are in uh, porn, at least the male actors, are picked uh, because they're unusually large, um, and that's not average. And uh, so some of the guys, especially younger guys, come in, and I think they're concerned that they're inadequate in terms of size, and guys care a lot about that. So it's a complicated topic, and I think we're going to be seeing over the next 5, 10, 15 years more and more how this plays out. I think it's impossible to say nobody should 